electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramer. I call people make friends. I'm just trying to make you a little money. My job, not just to entertain, but to explain. So call me at 1-800-743-CNBC. Tweet me at Jim Kramer. At the beginning of the year, brokerage houses love to name their favorite themes for the next 12 months. Usually they just look at what stocks are going up and then pick themes that fit. It is pure artifice, people. Not the best way to go about teaching or making predictions. But they're told to do it. And theirs is just to do or die. Me? I like to lay out themes you can fall back on all year. Themes that you buy on the down days. Like this one where the Dow shed 94 points. S&P tumbled 0.56%. NASDAQ dropped 0.59%. And again, at one point, it was down a lot more. But people keep buying these intraday dips. They can't resist. Not a good sign, frankly. There's a reason I've been telling you to have lots of cash on the sidelines. Something I've repeatedly stressed to the investor club. And I'll tell you, the investing club people seem to respond pretty well to it. You need cash to participate when stocks get put on sale. And if you understand the themes behind them, you won't get shaken out by a bad tape. You'll use it to your advantage. You know what it's like? It's like kind of having a map when you're engulfed in the fog of war. So let me give you my favorites. They're a little different. My first thought is the theme grafted on to an observation. Obviously, given the strength of Magnificent Seven coming into the year, everyone's going to have an opinion about whether they can keep running. Me? No. I want to queue up the Elmer Bernstein score, put on my best Eli Wallach face, huddle with John Sturgis to figure out which of the seven is going down early. Which of them is Harry Locke, the character played by Brad Dexter, who gets shot pretty early in the scuffle? I mean, who's to say we need all seven? Only three survived the movie. To me, it's looking a little like Tesla will be the first to fall. We have a CEO who's gotten a little petulant again, talking about needing to control 25% of the company in order to innovate. I guess it's not enough to have 13% be the richest man in the world. Elon, bad look. I know he identifies with Inigo Montoya from The Princess Bride, a.k.a. Mandy Patinkin. But to me, he's about to be taken out by Calavera, Eli Wallach's brilliant bad guy, the Magnificent Seven. Just like in the movie, The Seven Were Never Buddies. Did you know that? First to be shot, Harry Luck thinks that he's down in Mexico not to rescue the villagers, but to find a hoard of gold. Now, just to switch metaphors a little, he's kind of like the Dobbsy figure in Treasure Sierra Madre. Yeah, Bogart. So is Musk, he's kind of like Dobbs and uh, Harry. I mean, really, can you imagine, just, just humor me, can you imagine Jensen Wong coming on air and saying he needs five times his current holdings if he's going to do some super duper generative AI? I mean, can you imagine that? Pure hubris, which is why Tesla might be the first to exit the seven. Of course, Tesla lovers have none of this. I get a piece of research today that says that Apple's going to have a terrible quarter because of a slowdown in China. The uniform nature of this view is so ingrained that any Apple analyst who's watching is capping that I haven't chosen Apple to fall from its horse first. But then again, do you know apparently Robert Vaughn begged not to be killed first in the movie? So who knows? Maybe we're going to end up with three amigos or something. 
So I'm not looking for the seven to rise or fall together. I'm looking for the others to join the seven. Ideally, we need about 300, eh, 300 Spartans worth of breath from the SP 500. But we're not going to get that. Still, it's far more likely that the makeup changes. That's right. Even I suspect the seven will always be uniquely tied up with AI. Second theme, the election. Now, I keep hearing this is an election year and election years. The market typically goes up higher yeah, for president. Yeah, actually, I'm not that sure. I think there are elections and then there's this election, which is highly unusual for reasons you don't need me to explain. I will say, though, that there's never been a president more friendly to the stock market than Trump was. He measured himself by the Dow. Maybe you should use the S&P 500 for a broader yardstick. To be cynical about it, I think Trump will fight for rich people like no other. And given that everybody aspires to be rich, it'll go over well. I can see him saying that we need to cut the capital gains tax to boost investment. Oh, that would send the market soaring. I don't know if the Fed will not pay attention to the putative candidate's platform, but Trump never stuck me as a man of great restraint. His musings and the strong possibility that Biden might have to tack to the right to stand a chance would amount to a better than usual uh, time for the stock market. That said, I don't want to fall back to the election year theme yet until I see the whites of the rise. It may, it may not be worth it. Third, after going to the J.P. Morgan Healthcare Conference, I need to reiterate that these GLP-1 drugs are the real deal. You need some exposure to the space because anything that can stop diabetes, crush obesity, lower blood pressure, knock off heavy drinking, moderate COPD, and who the hell what, heck knows what else they can do, is something that every drug company wants a piece of. I don't care if you make the syringes like Beckton to consider work on a protein booster like Abbott Labs or develop a companion drug that helps ease the loss of muscle like Regeneron or make the shot once a month and not once a week like Amgen. It's an imperative for all pharma to be in on the GLP-1 hunt. I also believe that the food companies that were mowed down like the first day of the zone when we first heard of these wonder drugs should take advantage of this interregnum to adapt maybe less sugar, more protein. And of course, you can just go buy the stock of Eli Lilly. Fourth theme, we may look back on 2024 as the year that China collapses under its own communist weight. I just can't see how this leader and his policies can get China back on track. Is it really in Xi's ideological DNA to stop gunning for the wealthy, even if they've created a ton of jobs? Do you think this guy can be gracious to America and not stab us in the back while our people are still in the tarmac before they even leave the PRC? Does anyone believe that China can regain its standing with an economy based on um, empty apartment buildings? Finally, one more uh, for now. Mergers and acquisitions are back. Ignore the collapse of the JetBlue Spirit Airlines deal. That one was dead on arrival. I told you that a long time ago. Even as people seem oblivious to the already anti-competitive nature of the airline industry. I think the combination of the federal beatdown by the judge who pants the FTC for trying to block the harmless Microsoft Activision deal and the embarrassing fight then fold act with Amgen buying Horizon Therapeutics tells me that the days when you need to sell a stock because that a bad quarter may be over. How many deals actually start when a company's stock is down and an investment banker picks up the phone and says, hey, we got an opportunity here? Yet until now, we knew, we knew that every deal would be fought by the regulators. The pent-up M&A will be huge in 2024, so don't give up the bad quarter ship. Suitors might beckon. Oh, and one last theme. We need to think about how wrong this forward yield curve is. It's absurd that anyone's betting uh, that we could have six rate cuts this year. I'd rather bet that the Eagles will somehow find themselves in the Super Bowl after getting trounced by the Buccaneers the other day. One and not done. So here's the bottom line. I'll have a lot more themes as the year goes on because I'm not constrained by that calendar. But right now, unless you are indeed Yul Brenner or Steve McQueen, it's going to be a wild year where a lot of money will be made, even as some formerly beloved stocks do indeed bite the dust. Anna in Massachusetts. Anna. Hello, Jim. Thanks for taking my call. How are you today? Oh, I am doing well. How about you? 
I'm good, thanks. Uh, I'm a student over from Westfield State University over in Massachusetts. Quick shout-out to my professor, Dr. Fiori. Sounds good. I had a quick question about Snowflake, ticker code SNOW. Um, I've been watching it for some time. What are your thoughts? Should I should I buy it? Okay, uh, this is a great question. Now, I think Snowflake, who's run by the incredibly brilliant Frank Slootman, has a product that will make it so if you don't want to spend a boatload on AI, you can find you can rent snow and see how it goes. It's kind of like uh, Newly from uh, Urban Outfitters, you know, rent the rent the uh, spaceway or whatever, rent the jetway, rent the uh, cloudway. But I have to tell you, I think the stock is terrific. You should buy it. I wish it would kind of go down a little and then fill in that gap and then go higher. But I think you got a good one. I want to, and good shout out there too. Let's go to Martin in Texas, please, Martin. Oh yeah, Jimbo. All right, man. I've been what's a big happening? Fan of yours. Uh, hey, what's going on, man? Uh, I've been a big fan of yours for a few years now, and uh, I've learned a lot from watching your show. And I just appreciate everything that you do for us. Well, thank uh, you. Shout out to my family as well. Um, I just want to know what you think about Etsy. I've been holding it for for a couple of years now, um, but I'm thinking if uh, I, if I should sell it. So I'm no, just, no, uh, not down here, not down that. here. Look, I have total faith that Josh Silverman will come up with a formula because this is an eight billion dollar company that everybody in America knows. That kind of brand name is hard to find in an M and A now inspired world. This company will not be independent if it stays down here. There, I said it. You know what I feel like going right now? I feel like going to Anthony in New York. Anthony. Jim, how are you? A long-time listener. We love you out here from Staten Island. I can tell you that. Uh, All right, big guy. <laughs> my question for you is safe. With the news yesterday coming from the DOJ, blocking the merger between Spirit and JetBlue. You think it's time we double down on Spirit? Perhaps there's an appeal or maybe Frontier comes back in with an offer? No, no, I think we just uh, we we uh, cut our losses here. We just take the pain. It is like what Mr. T predicted uh, for Rocky. It's 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 pain. And I don't have any I I have no salve. I I don't have anything. I don't. Does anyone have any like antibiotics or something? Maybe there's some like Neosporin that needs Neosporin. It needs like just Sarna. It needs Sarna. All right. Anyway, I have a feeling that it's going to be a wild year where a lot of money could be made, even some formerly beloved stocks. And yes, maybe even some of those Magnificent Seven do bite the dust. I love Robert Vaughn and Man from Uncle, but that dates me. Anyway, on Man Money Tonight, the SEC recently approved trading of a new Bitcoin ETP. But are investors really getting the protections they expect? I'm digging into what an ETP really is and whether it's actually a place that you really want to put your money. Then, with the Iowa caucuses already finished, I'm going off the charts to find out what this election year could mean for the market. And I'm taking a closer look at two big banks' earnings reports to find out what they're saying about their stocks and about the state of capital markets in 2024. So stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Cramer on X. Have a question? Tweet Cramer. Hashtag Mad Mentions. Send Jim an email to madmoney at cnbc.com. Or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. Fact. Running a business is not getting easier on your wallet. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. Also a fact, smart businesses are reducing costs and headaches by graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. 
With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. Accessed from anywhere. You can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. See how you'll profit with NetSuite, and then you can think of all the ways you could be spending the money you save. Company retreat in Malibu, anyone? By popular demand, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to NetSuite.com to start saving. When you're hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging to connect with candidates faster. Plus, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash madmoney. Just go to Indeed.com slash madmoney right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash madmoney. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. After a weird rollout last week, the era of spot Bitcoin exchange-traded products has begun. In total, the SEC approved 11 of these things, nine brand new offerings, and two conversions of existing crypto ETPs. Last Thursday, they all started trading, and now that we've had a few days to absorb the impact, well, i got to explain what's really going on here. First things first, despite what you may have heard or read, these new Bitcoin investment vehicles are not exchange-traded funds, or ETFs. Instead, they're exchange-traded products, or ETPs, which makes everything more confusing. ETFs are a type of exchange-traded product, but they're not only not the only type. The SEC has been very clear that these Bitcoin vehicles are ETPs because it makes a huge difference from a regulatory perspective, and maybe for you, too. All exchange-traded products are regulated by the Securities Act of 1933 and the Securities and Exchange Act of 1934. But ETFs are also covered by the Investment Company Act, or 40 Act, uh, which is a law that regulates investment advisors. Anybody who, who issues an ETF is considered an investment advisor, which is a real pain in the neck, legally speaking. The 1940 Act imposes a bunch of fiduciary obligations on investment advisors. Governance requirements like independent directors, restrictions on transactions with affiliated parties, leverage restrictions, custody requirements, and more. Put simply, funds regulated by the 40 Act, including all ETFs, need to be managed on behalf of you, the investor. I bring this up because these protections do not apply to the Bitcoin ETPs that got approved last week. Less than ideal, as you want these kinds of protection, especially because there have been multiple instances of chicanery when it comes to crypto money management. One more caveat. While the SEC approved these exchange-traded products, you shouldn't take that as Gary Gensler, the head of the SEC's company, offering some sort of endorsement. Okay, so it's not an endorsement. It's not the government saying these are fine. Matter of fact, it's really quite the opposite. If you read the statement Gensler issued last Wednesday, it's crystal clear that the SEC felt their hands were tied here. He noted that the SEC had explicitly not approved more than 20 previous filings for these things in the past. But in one of those cases, they got challenged in court and the judge ruled against them. 
The court criticized the SEC for blocking spot Bitcoin ETPs, but also allowing other types of funds to track out, the, for example, Bitcoin futures, and basically forced them to reconsider. Should we care that the SEC didn't want to do this and essentially granted approval of these new spot Bitcoin ETFs by court order? Crypto proponents likely don't care. They were never big fans of the SEC anyway. So why should they care about whether or not the regulators are happy about this? But you know what? When I step back, I still think it's important to stress that the SEC basically did everything in its power to stop this stuff from happening. Now, that said, I'm not as stridently against these new vehicles as Gary Gensler's. Sure, I'm not a you know, crypto guy. I've dallied in it, but I and done okay, frankly. But at this point, Bitcoin's been around for 15 years. It's fairly well established. And I don't want to try to stop anyone from speculating on this stuff as long as they do their research. Of course, I'm not totally sure what your research would be, but that's not my problem. In the end, I feel a lot like Jamie Dimon, as a longtime Bitcoin skeptic and even antagonist, who's now pretty apathetic about the subject. Here's what Dimon said about, well, it's an expurgated, expurgated version, when he joined CNBC's Squawk Box at the World Economic Forum in Davos. What do you think of the, I mean, there's a, about a dozen big financial companies, Fidelity number, included. Number one, I don't care. So just please stop talking about this. <laughs> and, and I don't know what he would say about blockchain versus currencies that do something versus Bitcoin that does nothing. It may be that not different than me. But, you know, this is what makes a market. People have opinions. I, this is the last time I'm ever going to state my opinion. I'm going to hold that. If he ever says it again, I am going to just reach into my screen. And I'm going to throw a brick at him. I also respect the position of a firm like Vanguard, the gigantic privately held asset manager founded by the late great Jack Bogle, a leading proponent of passive investing and index funds. Vanguard has refused to make these spot Bitcoin ETPs available to its customers for their own protection. It even went so far as to take away support for all Bitcoin products, including the Bitcoin futures ETFs that it had previously allowed. In explaining the decision, Vanguard said simply that these things, quote, do not align with our offer focus on asset classes such as equities, bonds, and cash, which Vanguard views as the building blocks of a well-balanced long-term investment portfolio, end quote. This decision has upset some customers, but hey, Vanguard's sticking to its principles like it always does. Now, there's a bit of a horse race element to this story. Nine new ETPs launched from scratch last Thursday morning, while two existing exchange-traded products converted to a spot Bitcoin strategy. And we can track who's attracting the most money by following what are known as, quote, fund flows. The amount of new money coming into or out of an ETP on any given day. Now, we don't have the numbers for today yet. They're published every evening. But we can see through the first three days that about $750 million in new money has come into the 11 spot Bitcoin ETPs. Ten of, uh, of them brought in roughly $1.92 billion, but uh, $1.17 billion also came out of one of the converted ETPs, the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, which has far and away the highest fees in the space. Plus, uh, that about the $750 million in net new money also doesn't include the cash that's coming out of other Bitcoin-related ETPs, such as ProShares Bitcoin Strategy ETF, which offers exposure to Bitcoin futures. VanEck, an ETF issuer uh, that has one of the new spot Bitcoin ETPs, also announced today it would be liquidating and dissolving a separate Bitcoin future ETF because it's now no longer necessary to use the futures as a workaround strategy for Bitcoin exposure. Now, if you include the more than $160 million in outflows from the largest of these Bitcoin future ETFs, you're actually talking about less than $600 million in new inflows, net new inflows, for the Bitcoin exchange-traded product universe. Now, mind you, these are rough numbers, but they give you a sense of the scale of interest in these new vehicles. So this is what you've got to ponder. How should we feel about $600 million in new money coming into the space? 
Like I said before, I'm taking a page from Jamie Dimon here. This is a caveat enter situation. So you can do whatever the heck you want as long as you keep that in mind. But I will say this. Bitcoin has been running since June when BlackRock filed for spot Bitcoin ETF. Since then, the total market capitalization of Bitcoin has nearly doubled from $487 billion to north of $800 billion. Now, let's think about this. I can't say the entire rally since last summer was in anticipation of spot Bitcoin ETFs, but that accounts for a big chunk of it. You've heard the people from the industry said the approval of spot Bitcoin ETFs would lead to more institutional money coming into crypto. And that's the whole ballgame for these coins. So for now, I'll just say this. I'm surprised that inflows for the first few days weren't much, much, much larger. It makes me believe that Larry Williams was right last week when he warned of more downside ahead of Bitcoin. You know, $400 billion, $800 billion, and then this is the, all the money that comes in. That money was built and put in in anticipation of a huge amount of money coming in. This is worrisome. But the bottom line, you can make up your own mind about what to do with these spot Bitcoin ETPs. I just want to make sure that you know what exactly you might be putting your money in and how little went into these funds versus how much Bitcoin went up when it found out about the news that there would be these kinds of products. Bad Money is back after the break. Coming up, a cup and handle pattern means we're spilling the tea. Can the markets expect an election year boost? Kramer goes off the charts to find out next. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. This is a tricky moment for the market because we keep getting, well, it's good news in the economy. Today was strong December retail sales, skyrocketing home builder confidence. But good news is not what you want. When you're betting the Fed will bless us with a series of rate cuts, and many people in Wall Street were making exactly that bet. When the economy's robust, there's absolutely no reason for the Fed to cut rates aggressively, which is why the averages have been pulling back this weekend. I've been telling you that. There's just no way you're going to get all these rate cuts. On the other hand, though, if the Fed's truly done tightening, then maybe it's not so bad to have a strong economy, even when that means we're less likely to get those rate cuts anytime soon. I've said over and over that the consensus view of six rate cuts this year was totally out of whack with both reality and what the Federal Reserve was telling us. So the people who got too bullish only have themselves to blame. At times like this, though, you know what? It, it, it is tough to figure out where the market might be headed. We don't know how the economy will look in a few weeks. And even if we did, we can't be sure how the Fed might react to it. And that's why sometimes you need to take your subjective judgment out of the equation, turn to the technicals, because with the charts, you're just handling inputs and outputs. No emotion. Now, last week, the legendary Larry Williams warned us that we're entering a seasonally difficult period for the stock market and, of course, for Bitcoin. He said you might want to ring the register in the stock market because he's predicting pain through mid-March. But today I'll give you a little turn of view from another great technician who's nailed the market-wide bottom in late October. Yep, we're going to go off the charts this time with Jessica Inskip, the first woman on an active trader desk at Fidelity, now the director of product at Options Play and the co-host of the Market Make Her podcast. Back on October 24th, Inskip told us that the battered S&P 500 and the Nasdaq runner were really approaching a potential turning point that could translate into a powerful bottom. Bold call at a moment when everything felt terrible, but she was dead right. Plus, in late July, she correctly predicted that August would be a slaughterhouse for the stock market. She's not just a permable. And you know what? Inskip is still bullish. First, just like Larry Williams, she's got history on her side. She points out that presidential election years tend to be terrific for the market. Since 1928, the SP 500 has rallied 75% of the time in election years. Average return of 7.5%. Not bad. 
On top of that, during the Biden administration so far, these seasonal moves related to the presidency have been aligned with historical patterns even more pronounced than usual. You know I'm suspect of this election view because this is an unusual election year. But as we get through the primaries and get tons of continuances from prosecutors and a Supreme Court ruling, well, I mean, a lot of hurdles there, but it could be a clearer situation. But it's not just history. Let's take a look at the weekly chart of the S&P 500 because Inskip likes this picture very much. She says the S&P's bullish trading cycle hasn't gone anywhere. When Inskip looks for positive technical set- setup, she wants to see the 13-week, 26-week, and 40-week moving averages trending higher. Because that means we've had one, two, or three quarters of rising prices. Everybody in this business judges uh, stocks quarterly, so I'm actually surprised more people don't watch these same key moving averages. Right now, the S&P's got all three going in the right direction. Pretty positive, right? That one's a little curly cue, but it's still positive. Now, the last time Inskip showed us this chart, she said the S&P needed to overcome its ceiling of resistance, running from 4545 to 4637. The first level traces back to the higher lows in the final weeks of March in 22. And the second level was the high in the final week of August in 2021. The S&P blasted through these levels in mid-December. It hasn't looked back since. As Inskip sees that the old ceiling resistance became a new floor of support, okay? Although, it, thanks to the market's run, there's another floor propping up at 4743. I mean, this is really pretty amazing. You have this one, you have that one. A lot of floors. Uh, we're currently testing this right now in the pullback. I'm not sure it holds, but that, we're not talking about what I think here. More importantly, the Institute points out the S&P has made what's known as a cup and handle pattern, which is a U-shaped bottom followed by a much smaller pullback or period of sideways trading. The S&P now broken out of the handle, which tells her that it could potentially have the juice to blast through 4818, oh my, past being where we have the numbers here, uh, and start making new all-time highs. By the way, she, sees, she says we're seeing a very similar pattern with the NASDAQ 100. However, if history has any guide, Inskip believes we could be in for a period of consolidation through May. In presidential election years, the S&P typically goes nowhere for five-odd months before taking off with a very strong summer rally. In short, she's bullish from 2024, but she thinks she might need to be patient because the gains are likely to be backloaded. And you know I agree with that, as I said at the top of the show. Now, I want you to take a look at the S&P 500 equal weight. And you've heard a lot about this lately. This has the same stocks as the regular S&P, but in equal proportions rather than giving more weight to larger companies. Think of it as the S&P 493 because it's designed to minimize the impact of high market cap stocks like the Magnificent 7. In short, it gives you a much better sense of the market's breadth. You can see that while 2023 was ultimately fantastic for the normal S&P 500, okay, it was a lot less impressive for the equal weight. Kind of did nothing. How about that, huh? Because so much of the market strength was concentrated in the mega caps. Now, the S&P equal weight broke out above its ceiling resistance at 6321. Here's 6321. And that's the breakout right there, uh, which propelled us higher. But as of last week, it tumbled back below that level. So 6321 remains a ceiling. Let me get above that. Ceiling of resistance. That tells Inskip that the equal weight S&P is likely to trade sideways or even pull back until we find the next floor of support at 6211. I have communicated earlier that I think the next move is the pullback. What about the mega cap side of the equation everyone's so worried about? All right, here we go. Check out the weekly chart of Apple. Inskip's bringing this up because Apple's reached multiple support levels. She says this is a conditional call that's worth paying attention to because of the company's colossal market cap. What's the issue? Okay, now that Apple's pulled back hard from its highs, it's closed below its 13-week and 26-week moving averages. Remember, Inskip believes those are critical. At this point, Apple remains above its 40-week moving average, 
at almost 182, but it's only very slightly above that level. It's also barely holding one above this 182 floor of support from, from uh, last October. You just got to go back and see there. This is a crucial, crucial level. If the stock goes much lower, it's going to be overwhelmed by sellers. That would be just awful. Uh, but if demand can overcome supply at current levels, she thinks we might be actually looking at a great buying opportunity. Assuming the stock can close above 182 on Friday. So we got a couple days to figure this one out, huh? While she's bullshitting up a longer term, she thinks this short-term setup could go either way. Of course, I am sticking to my guns that you should simply own Apple, not trade it. But the bottom line, the charts as interpreted by Jessica Inskip suggest the S&P 500 is a strong setup. And the market tends to do well in presidential election years. However, that same history tells us that stocks tend to get stuck in a rut during the early months of an election year, only to start roaring in the summer. And that certainly lines up with what she sees in the chart of the equal weight S&P 500. Let's take calls. Why don't we start with Betsy in California. Betsy. Hey, Jim. How you doing? I'm doing well, Betsy. How about you? Jim, you know, you may think that people are the original members of the investment club, but the fact of the matter is the original investment club started all the way back in the Kudlow Kramer days. Yes, and it I did. And I know because I've been there with you. Oh, thank and you. Yes, it started a long time ago when I really felt I wanted to teach people uh, and I wanted to give money to charity. And those were really important for me. And I've stuck with it. And thank you for sticking with me. Well, I have, to, I have to tell you how thrilled everybody I know is with the club. Hey, Jim, uh, I do have a question. There's something sure. that, that is, does bother me, okay? Mm-hmm. I, I am looking at a stock that has four quarters of increasing fund ownership. Four quarters. And okay. Four, and four quarters where they've made every single one of their numbers. Okay. Their P.E. is only 8.63, and the profit margin is 15.02%. You see, I have been I have been learning from you, Jim. Oh, you sure have. That's fantastic. <laughs> okay, but the, my, here's my problem. Okay, uh-huh. I I want to be in Nucor because the funding is already set aside by everybody in Congress. So I want to be an investor in this company. Do I have your blessing? Yes, you do. As a matter of fact, I was going over today the tariffs that we put on the Chinese, and I realized that while they're good for Cleveland Cliffs, they're unbelievable for Nucor. Not that they need it because they're a low-cost producer, but China has historically dumped below the price that even Nucor can make steel. I think you have a winner here. I've been trying to figure out how to get back into it for the club. Uh, and you know what? All your call did is make me even work harder ahead of our annual meeting to figure out how I can get Nucor back in. It's certainly better than some of the other stocks I own. Thank you for your call and for your encouragement. Let's go to Bob in New Jersey. Bob. Booyah, Jim. How Booyah, are you? Bob. I am good. How about you? Okie doke. Uh, I just wanted to say that it's your integrity that makes you the Booyah Saint of Wall Street. Wow. Well, man, I wish my wife were on a plane. If she heard this, it would be just dynamite. Maybe, you know, I'd, I'd get like a nice dinner or something. Yo. She's on a plane. She can't hear. We're fine. You and me talking. <laughs> um, I love my French fries, Jim. And so, therefore, I love LW. Lamb oh, and you are right, Tom. Like no, I'm not kidding. That quarter was dynamite. And this company, which is worth $15 billion, is just too darn inexpensive. I think these guys have really figured it out. I like the stock very much. I'm glad you brought it to my attention. Thank you for that new moniker. I like it a lot. And I love my wife, so don't get me wrong. That was just, I was just hungry. All right. The charts interpreted by Jessica Inskip suggest that the S&P 500 tends to get stuck in a rut during the early months of an election year, only to start roaring in the summer. I like that. I think she's right. Our chart is bullish, and so am I. 
when we get there. Maybe a little before that. All right, now much more mid money. We've got mixed results from two of the big banks yesterday. Uh, Goldman Sachs, I thought was pretty good. Morgan Stanley, well, you'll have to hear. So what are the stocks saying about the possibility of capital markets recovery? I'll explain it. Then we got new GDP data out of China today, and as usual, it was disappointing. So should we even still be looking for growth in the Chinese economy? I'll give you my cake. And order calls rapid fire to tonight's edition of the Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. Yesterday morning, we heard from the two top investment bankers in America, Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley. Although at this point, Morgan Stanley is more of a wealth management play. The four big money center banks that reported on Friday have some investment banking sales and trading exposure, too, especially J.P. Morgan. But it's not their core business. For Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley, capital markets activity is basically the whole ballgame, which is why I was so eager to hear what they had to say. Why don't we start with Goldman Sachs, where I did work in the 80s. It turned into the quarter that Wall Street liked best, sending the stock up a couple of bucks yesterday despite the negative tape. The headline numbers for all the banks were wacky this earnings season, but for what it's worth, Goldman Sachs really did blow away expectations, earning $5.48 per share. Wall Street was only looking for $3.62 on top of much higher than expected revenues. Their global markets business, which houses Goldman's investment banking and capital markets operations, lackluster. less. Yeah, it was lackluster, but yeah, that makes sense. A revenue down 3% year over year and a bit below what the analysts were looking for, even as the equities division was very strong. That wasn't enough to offset the weakness in fixed income, currency, and commodities down 24%. I expected that. The real driver of Goldman's better-than-expected results was their asset and wealth management business, my old division, which saw 23% revenue growth year-over-year. Year. That's extraordinary. Management called out higher revenue from equity and debt investments and rising management fees. CEO David Solomon also explained that the asset and wealth management benefits from the rise of alternative strategies like private credit, the hottest area in finance, really helped. Goldman clearly wants to be known, but wants the core of the narrative going forward as being this wealth management business, but for really wealthy people. I like that. Get rid of the failed, the taint of the failed consumer efforts, I should say. To round things out, the company also had some impressive expense control, thanks in part to a 7% reduction in headcount last year, uh, as the firm continued to right-size its workforce in the post-pandemic era. But Goldman's return on tangible common equity came in at 7.6% for the quarter. Uh, it settled at 8.1% for a full year in 2023. That, that, that was not good. It was well below the stated medium target of 15%. Very hard to get there until the capital markets business recovers. But remember, I think it can. So can this whole narrative really stay for the better? Goldman Sachs sure thinks it can. On the conference call, David Solomon sounded optimistic about his business in 2024. He said that while we're not back to the 10-year averages... Capital markets activity, quote, has materially improved. In particular, Solomon called out the firm's strong M&A backlog and also predicted, quote, more meaningful IPOs in 2024, more activity in equity and debt issuance and continued strength in financing. That's everything I wanted to hear. At the end of the day, Goldman turned in a pretty darn good result for the fourth quarter. Finding a new narrative for investors to focus on with the growth of asset and wealth management. Very well done. Then management sounded optimistic enough about capital markets activity this year, which is why the stock could rally yesterday, even as it gave up its gains today. I, I buy that one. See, my view, look, Goldman stock had already rallied 30% from its October lows, but after this quarter, I bet it's got more upside after it settles in. All right, Apple Morgan Stanley. All right, these numbers were not received nearly as well as Goldman's, with, uh, with Morgan Stanley's stock tumbling more than 4% yesterday before getting dinged for another 2% today after a couple analysts downgraded overnight. It's a repeat of the last fiasco quarter that we got here. This one certainly hurt. It hurt me. 
It's Morgan Stanley's a decent-sized holding for the Chapel Trust. The Trust made a lot of money in this one early on, but for the past couple of years, this stock's been stuck bouncing between 80 and 100, and it's now much closer to the low end of the range. So full disclosure, I don't have a great track record on Morgan Stanley, but guess what? They don't have a great track record on Morgan Stanley. It's all the more reason to figure out what the heck happened here to decide whether the stock's even worth thinking about. I am also none too happy with how satisfied they seem to be, maybe even smug. I'm smug about not making the playoffs, which is how I view this quarter. Yeah, I am steamed about this. First, Morgan Stanley had mixed headline numbers with slightly better than expected revenues paired with a sizable earnings business. In fact, the earnings were down 32.5% year over year. Again, though, our earnings numbers were incredibly messy for all the banks this quarter. If you backed that Morgan Stanley's FDIC assessment and some other one-time legal charges taken in the quarter, they would have had a six-cent earnings beat of a dollar seven basis. Although that still would have been down 10% year over year. That's that is nothing to write home about. Looking through the major business units, wealth management, investment management, and social securities, many investment banking, well, they were a little better than expected on a revenue basis. Frankly, I'd say it was an unremarkable quarter for Morgan Stanley, and I am being a gent. The negative response seems to be more of a reaction to management's pathetic commentary about the future, which was, I guess some people call mixed. Perhaps it's worth noting that after longtime CEO James Gordon retired at the end of last year, even as he stuck around the chairman's job, this was the first Morgan Stanley conference call run by new CEO Ted Pegg. And he sounded a bit guarded. Same goes for CFO Sharon Ushaya. Pick noted that his base case was still a soft landing, but he also warned of two major risks, intensifying geopolitical conflicts in the state of the economy, where it's possible that either slowdown or lingering inflation could derail the soft landing thesis. Well, that's not really just only Morgan Stanley. Hey, Morgan Stanley's outlook for the investment banking business cautiously optimistic. I like that. They basically said they're uh, set up to do well if capital markets are strong, but we'll see if that happens. But what I didn't see coming yesterday were some comments from management about the wealth management business, Morgan Stanley's largest unit now that it's acquired E-Trade in advance, counting for roughly half the business. Ted Pick was talking about the unit's profitability. The company had previously issued a goal of 30% operating margins for this division. But in yesterday's call, he said they won't be getting there anytime soon. When pressed on the subject later, Pick explained that with higher interest rates, with interest rates higher in recent quarters, many customers have opted to just park their cash in money market funds. And those aren't very profitable for the firm. As rates come down and people swap into other types of investments, Morgan Stanley's margins will get a boost. But it'll take some time for it to happen. I don't think that's a serious problem at all. Yet this is the so-called uncertainty that caused Thanos to downgrade the stock. Interesting enough, by the way, Schwab stock did much better than Morgan Stanley's with the same problem, which tells me that the street has a lot more confidence in Schwab than they do in Morgan Stanley. Holy cow. When you read that book about J.P. Morgan, you're thinking, is this really the heir? In the end, I'm certainly not thrilled about this quarter at the investment club, which wondering if we should just swap out of the darn thing. Yeah, just go into Goldman Sachs, company I know. But at the same time, we're not quite ready to throw in the towel yet. When you get this kind of cautious commentary from the new CEO, and my gut's saying that maybe he's just trying to reset expectations lower to play the UPOD game. Plus, Morgan Stanley's paying you to wait with that 4% yield, and they're right in there buying you thanks to an aggressive buyback. They should buy a ton back if they want to show conviction. If it sells off anymore, uh, maybe going down to around 78 to 80, you know what? We may have to pick some of it up just to get a better basis. Call me surprised at how little leverage this wealth management business has. Can they really not make more money off a client? I don't know which is more disappointing, the numbers or how they didn't seem disappointed with the numbers. All right, I'm upset. Hey, I'm human. But the bottom line, we got mixed results from Goldman and Morgan Stanley yesterday. Goldman seemed to turn the page with a more bullish new narrative and a management making the case for a capital markets recovery this year. I like their quarter. Morgan Stanley was more cautious, though, and that's why the stock got hit. 
Uh, that said, I didn't hear anything that made me think it's a lost cause, especially when I think this will be a year full of M&A and stock issuance. I still think it's worth being patient with this one. But patience is nil on Wall Street, and Morgan Stanley has now become the most despised house in a pretty inexpensive neighborhood. I may be ready to move. Their money's back into the break. Coming up, pop open those umbrellas and tee up your toughest questions. Kramer takes on all comers in the lightning round. Next. It is time to the lightning round. Kramer, remember that's by Rob Cole, the stage of stuff. Play this up. And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready, Ski? Daddy, talk about the lightning round. Let's start with Jonathan in Pennsylvania. Jonathan. Booyah, Jim. Booyah, Jonathan. Jim, thank you, first of all, for being so kind to my father and I as we watched Matt Caliban to Doylestown in November. Really oh, that's nice, that. man. Thank you. Thank yeah. you very much. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Jim, I love how the Investing Club nourishes our financial intelligence. I have got a stock with an RSI about 27, but just because it's oversold does not necessarily mean it's a buy. I want to know Indeed. if you think I'm looking at a battleground stock and whether or not I should feast or famine on Bungie. Thank you, my good Bungie man. is a battleground stock. Thank you for those kind words. Bungie is a battleground because agribusiness, the whole agri, the whole, really the whole agricultural complex has become a battleground. I'm not going to wade in there. I want that stock to bottom before I would make a move too commodity-oriented. Let's go to Tracy in Nevada. Tracy. Hi, Jim. I want to thank you for making me a lot of money and allowing me to support many charities, including International Fellowship of Christians and Jews. And I want to remind everybody to be thankful for all the history-making and life-changing wonderful contributions that we enjoy from men and women inspired by their Jewish faith and traditions. And my stock is AEP. AEP. Okay. Uh, 4.4% yield. I think I think Julie Sloat's doing a great job, a lot like Nick Jacobs did before that, and I think the stock is a buy. Now we're going to Ken in Kansas. Ken, hello, Jim. Hey, Ken. Hey, my question is: I'm a I have a self-directed uh, retirement account, and my very first stock that I purchased, individual stock that I purchased over 35 years ago, was Intel. Is it a hold or sell at this point? I think point? they were having a big PC refresh. People aren't talking enough about it. I'm going to have to maybe do a major focus on it tomorrow night, and Intel is a big winner in that, and I think you'll be fine. Let's go to Jeffrey in Florida. Jeffrey. What's going on, Kramer? Fifth time, long time. Uh, how do you like that? That's dynamite. What's going on with you? Oh, nothing much, my brother. With the shift over from A320 to Boeing. 737 Max Jet and a new resort. Will ALGT be cleared for takeoff? Uh, why don't you just go by Booking Holdings and BKNJ? I mean, the whole street loves it. They're all lapdogs for it. It never goes down. Glenn Fogel's a really good CEO. Just go buy that one. Let's not outthink this game. I need to go to Mike in Florida. Mike. Hey, Jim. Booyah. Booyah. I go uh, WD40. It's uh, recently ran up thirty percent. I'm gonna bring up. 10 we missed it, of man. Mine. We missed it. We missed it. Now this company has a history of going great numbers, bad numbers, great numbers. We missed it. We're too late. We have to own that and we have to move on. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the lightning round. The lightning round is sponsored by Charles Schwab. Coming up, is it time to cool the agitation over the China trade? Kramer looks elsewhere for growth. Next. 
All right, let's stop being surprised by lousy data coming out of China. I mean, are we really shocked that their fourth quarter GDP came in at 5.2%? Experts are looking for 5.3%, something that was repeatedly described as a major shortfall. Ten basis points isn't a major anything. Of course, big picture, though, China ain't what it used to be. For years, we've gotten used to nonstop excellent numbers from these guys, consistent high single-digit growth. Now the Chinese economy is on a much less impressive trajectory, although only when you compare it to the China of old. So what's the threat here? There was an excellent article in today's Wall Street Journal about how births in China dropped by more than 500,000 last year, just over 9 million. Women in China are now bearing just one child on average, which is well below the replacement rate. Even during the one-child policy, they had a higher birth rate than they do now. And nothing the Chinese government does seems to be able to get their population growing again. You know, we saw a similar decline in East Germany before that country fell apart. Although China's fertility numbers are actually even lower than East Germany's were. It's a sign that its people believe its future is not as bright as its past. There's also no sign of any rebound in Chinese real estate, with home prices falling the most in almost nine years, according to Bloomberg, which had numerous articles about China's deflation crisis. If you're trying to jumpstart your economy, deflation is the kiss of death because no consumer wants to buy something that's going to go down in value immediately. So you get a buyer strike. Government stimulus can help, but the Chinese Communist Party doesn't believe in giving people handouts. Many people think China can export its way out of this jam. That presumes a more robust marketplace worldwide, but we don't have that. Nor can China rely on the American stock market to raise cash for all sorts of enterprises like they used to do. We had more than 100 IPOs last year. 21 were from companies based in China, but they averaged just 24 million in capital raise. Now, I do expect to see deals from TikTok, uh, Xi'an, uh, Temu all coming up. Uh, by Xi'an and Temu, they're going to be just gigantic. Two retailers were surprising people with how much money they raised. It will also amaze you that there are buyers of solid given how much money's been lost on Chinese IPOs. But the handful of legitimate ones ensure that people always keep going back to the well. And we have a never-ending group of optimists about China and its stocks for some reason that is not at all clear to me. However, I hardly ever hear anyone mention that China's growth has been hindered by American politics. Yet I think that's the crucial negative we all must focus on. We're in an election year, and both presidential candidates, both, want to show how much contempt they have for China. Trump's been a diehard China hater for decades. He put through tariffs that, among other things, saved the American steel industry. Biden's been very tough on China when it comes to exports of sensitive technology that could be militarized. Meanwhile, we still have a 27.5% tariff on Chinese electric vehicles put in place by Trump that's largely kept them out of our country. Biden could have pulled it. It would have been good for the environment, but he chose not to. Perhaps the most important point of agreement between the two candidates, I think it's that American companies would do better if they sourced elsewhere. Now, they haven't succeeded yet. Our retailers still carry a ton of Chinese wares. When I looked at a Walmart this weekend and turned dozens of labels inside out, I saw a majority of goods still made in China. But if, we're the, the, if I were CEO of an American company and I saw the polls for Trump, I would most certainly not open a new plant in China. I think people underestimate how important we are to the Chinese economy. And these days, with all the natural resources we have, I think we've got the upper hand over them. Most people don't feel that way. Most people have an inferiority complex about our country. So as I see it, the Chinese slide may be in its infancy, unless the Chinese government starts tossing yuan out of helicopters all through the country. The estimates must come down across the board. we got to get more realistic here. India, not China, is growing demographically. India's gotten richer. India doesn't make difficult, uh, life difficult for those who've made a lot of money from business. They create wealth for others. When we think growth, it's time to start thinking about India, not China. I'm realistic. I know that India's not big enough yet. But get used to looking at figures for India, which is growing much faster and has crossed China in population, because it's the future. And unless the Chinese Communist Party learns basic Keynesian economics, China's the past. I like to say there's always more market summer. I promise I'd find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Kramer. See you tomorrow. Last call starts now. 
All opinions expressed by Jim Cramer on this podcast are solely Cramer's opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, or their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by Cramer on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Jim Cramer as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. Cramer's opinions are based upon information he considers reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warn its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Mad Money Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash disclaimer. Picture this. It's Saturday morning and you're on your John Deere compact tractor. You're effortlessly breaking ground on your new landscaping project. Next, you're moving piles of rocks just by moving a lever. And now you're enjoying the warmth of the sun as you clear brush across your pasture. We could keep trying to put you in the moment, but to really understand everything you can do with a John Deere compact tractor, you just have to get in the seat. Learn more at johndeere.com slash get in the seat or visit a dealer near you.